Welcome to Season 2 of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. This season we take a look at the group's first few trips to Hamburg, Germany and their rise to becoming the most popular band in Liverpool. Episode 19 Mr. Epstein. In this episode, the Beatles' wild ride continues with the formation of a one-off Liverpool supergroup and a momentous lunchtime visit to the cavern by a local record store owner. This is the story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, October 1961. Two weeks before John Lennon's 21st birthday on October 9th, he received a cash gift of £100 from an aunt in Scotland. He decided to use the money to fund a trip to Paris for himself and Paul. Apparently the choice of Paris came about following a letter that former bandmate Stuart Sutcliffe had sent from Hamburg in which mentioned that the Beatles' friend Jürgen Vollmer would be in Paris. Once in the City of Lights, John and Paul apparently spent most of their time hanging around artsy cafes until their money ran out. They did however take in some of the local music scene, attending a concert by French rocker Johnny Halliday at the Olympia Theatre. Paul wrote a review of this concert that appeared in a later edition of the Merseybeat newspaper. They also spent some time checking out a local rock music club in the Montmartre area of the city. John and Paul met up with Jürgen, who eventually persuaded them to permanently adopt the hairstyle that they'd been introduced to by Stuart in Hamburg, and which to their surprise they saw most of the French teenagers sporting. Shortly after John and Paul's return from Paris, the group were back together for an afternoon charity event held at the Albany Cinema in the Magull area of Liverpool. The star matinee, as it was billed, was put on by Jim Gertie from Hesse's Music Store, who had helped the boys out at various points, in aid of the local St John's Ambulance Brigade. Comedian Ken Dodd topped the bill of 16 acts that included classical musicians, an organist, country and western groups and an opera singer. After a full three hours of entertainment, the Beatles closed out the day's proceedings with a raucous 10-minute set. The event programme described the group's appearance as follows. We are fortunate in having secured the services of the Beatles, as they have only just arrived back from Germany. They are in England for only a short time before embarking on another European tour. All four are Liverpool-born and are great favourites with the teenagers, all of whom are in one voice in describing them as fabulous. What more can we say? Two days later, the Beatles made a one-off appearance at the David Lewis Club in Liverpool City Centre. What makes this gig notable is that it was the first commercial venture by the fledgling Beatles fan club, which had only been in operation for a month. The 19th of October saw the Beatles back at the Litherland Town Hall for what turned out to be another unique event. The Beatles were sharing the bill with Jerry and the Pacemakers and partway through the evening someone suggests they join together to create a one-off supergroup. 
Some sources suggest that the idea was actually first discussed between the groups at the Mandolin pub over a few beers following an earlier lunchtime session at the cavern. Wherever it had been discussed, it resulted in the following lineup: George on lead guitar, Paul on rhythm, Pete Best and Freddie Marsden sharing Pete's drum set, Les McGuire on sax, Les Chadwick on bass, John on piano and Jerry Marsden on lead guitar and vocals. Although the two groups often appeared on the same bill thereafter, the experiment was never repeated. On the 21st, the two groups played an all-nighter at the Cavern that also included the Remo 4 and 3 jazz bands, the Yorkshire Jazz Band, the Panama Jazz Band and Pete Haslam's Collegians. John McCormack, who later played bass with the folk group The Spinners, recalled, I thought the Beatles were amazing and I thought their stamina was amazing. They were flying through the gigs in England and must have felt like they were almost over before they started in comparison to the long nights they'd been playing in Hamburg. The rest of the month was rounded out by regular lunchtime and evening, including an all-nighter engagements at the Cavern, plus appearances at the Casbah Coffee Club, Notty Ashville Each Hall, Aintree Institute, Hamilton Hall, and a return to the Lytham Town Hall for a Halloween bash. Part 2. November 1961. Although not officially noted as such, the lunchtime of Wednesday, November the 1st, may have been the first time that the Fab Four performed together at the Cavern, and maybe their first outing as a foursome. Terry McCasco, the drummer with the Roadrunners, recalls, quote, I remember that Ringo played with the Beatles at a lunchtime session. I suppose Pete Best was ill. When I got down there, the guitars and amps were there, but there was no drum kit, just a hi-hat and some cymbals. We were waiting and waiting, and people were shouting, Come on, it's our lunch hour! The Beatles came on stage with Ringo, but he didn't have a kit, and he was just stamping on the stage and tapping cymbals as they played. After 20 minutes, somebody appeared with a drum kit, and they set them up, and off they went again. If the 6th of July 1957, the day that John Lennon and Paul McCartney met, can be considered the pivotal day in the early Beatles history, which we covered in detail back in Season 1, Episode 6, then the 9th of November 1961 could perhaps run into close second, for it was on this day that a lunchtime visitor to the cavern would become entranced with the group and change their lives, and arguably all of ours, over the next few years. Popular legend has it that on Saturday 28th of October, a local teenager named Raymond Jones wandered into the NEMS music store in the centre of Liverpool and asked the manager, one Brian Epstein, for a copy of the Beatles record My Bonnie that had been released on the Polydor label in Germany. Epstein always prided himself on the fact that he would fulfil any customer order and set out to track down the record. Jones explained to Epstein that though the record was on a German label, the group in question were in fact from Liverpool and performed at the nearby Cavern Club during the lunch hour. Professing ignorance of the group, Mr. Epstein decided to check out one of these lunchtime shows and was immediately smitten by what he saw. That's the legend, but like many aspects of the Beatles story, it has many facets. Let's start with Raymond Jones and his recollection of events. Quote, I used to go to NEMS every Saturday and would be buying records by Carl Perkins and Fats Dominoes because I'd heard the Beatles play their songs. My sister's ex-husband told me that the Beatles had made a record, so I went into NEMS to get it. Brian Epstein said to me, who are they? And I said, they are the most fantastic group you will ever hear. No one will take away from me that it was me who spoke to Brian Epstein and then he went down to the cavern to see for himself. The problem I've always had with this aspect of the story is the idea that Brian Epstein, the manager of Liverpool's largest record store, populated by teenagers, had no idea who the most popular group in the city were. We covered Brian Epstein's background and how he came to be running the family-owned record store in Season 1, Episode 7. And while Brian's musical taste ran more to classical and light entertainment than rock music, he was a shrewd store owner who had a reputation for knowing what his customers wanted. As Raymond Jones himself mentioned, many of those customers were buying records because the Beatles were covering them. They were the most popular act in Liverpool and his customers must surely have been talking about them. Around the time of the Raymond Jones inquiry, NEMS was also selling tickets for the upcoming Operation Big Beat event in which the Beatles were headlining. Their name was on every ticket. 
Here's Cavern DJ Bob Wooler's account of how Brian Epstein found his way into the cavern. Quote, Brian Epstein learned that the Beatles were playing pretty close to his shop. He was intrigued to see what they were like and he phoned Bill Harry at Merseybeat and asked him to smooth his entrance into the cavern. Bill arranged for this with owner Ray McFall and Paddy Delaney, the doorman. I think it's worth exploring the Merseybeat connection a bit here. As Bob Wooler remarks, Brian Epstein knew Bill Harry, the founder and editor of the Merseybeat magazine, well enough to ask Bill to get him entrance to the club. Brian Epstein sold copies of the Merseybeat newspaper in his store and in fact was also a regular advertiser in it, plus he wrote record reviews for the paper. The issue of Merseybeat, dated July the 20th, featured news of the Beatles' German recording contract as its front cover headline, along with a photograph of the group, of which, according to Bill Harry's records, over 100 copies had been sold through Brian Epstein's NEMS store. And of course, Merseybeat founder Bill Harry was a friend of the group and gave them regular coverage in the paper right from the first issue. Surely he must have mentioned them to Brian Epstein at some point. According to some reports, the Beatles had also returned from Hamburg, or more likely been sent, possibly by Stuart, with some copies of their Polydor single, and had given one to Bob Wooler, who played it between acts at the Cavern and other, van- other venues where he was DJing. It's more than likely that this is how Raymond Jones heard about the single, given the fact that Bob Wooler was plugging the record all over Liverpool, there's a good chance that others had also made inquiries at NEMS about the single. In fact, in his autobiography, Epstein said that two girls came into the store a few days after the apocryphal Jones conversation and asked about this strange record that he couldn't find listed in the record retailer industry catalogue. Brian Epstein's assistant at NEMS, Alistair Taylor, who was later general manager at Apple, recalled, quote, One day Brian asked me to join him for lunch, but he wanted to look in at the cavern first to catch one of the Beatles' lunchtime sessions. I recognised the Beatles from their visits to NEMS, though I don't remember them buying many records. So the Beatles were NEMS customers themselves too, and recognisable ones. But perhaps it doesn't really matter if Brian Epstein already knew who they were or not. What matters is that Brian Epstein was in the cavern on that particular lunchtime. Picking up Bob Waller's recollections, Brian took his PA, Alistair Taylor, along for support and they stood at the back of the crowd and heard John, Paul, George and Pete on stage, although they can't have seen very much. But it was fortunate that Brian was there for a good performance when he came down to the cavern that lunchtime. Alistair Taylor remembers the Beatles were playing A Taste of Honey. and twist and shout. particularly impressed that they included original songs. The one that sticks in my mind was Hello Little Girl. This may be a false memory as Paul and John still didn't have the confidence to perform their own songs at this point. Returning to Bob Wooler, Brian was bowled over by them. He also liked how they behaved and he found them very animalistic. They were unkept and most of all they were lithe and physically attractive. Brian recalls the visit in a 1964 BBC radio interview. I started uh, whilst I was 
in charge of the records division of a family concern of which I was and am, as it happens, still a director. Uh, we were asked, or I was asked, by a young boy for a record by a group by the Beatles. And it always had been our policy in records to look after whatever request was made. And I followed up this inquiry. I didn't know anything about it. Um, and it was only after a week or two that he told me that they were, in fact, a Liverpool group. I, I assumed, for some reason, that they were from Germany. Mm. Anyway, he told me that they were a Liverpool group and that they'd just, in fact, returned from Germany and that they were playing in a club called The Cavern, uh, about 100 yards away from my office, and I arranged to go down there and I saw them one midday session, which is a pretty... And at the time, it was a pretty, uh, pretty much of an eye-opener to go down into this darkened, yeah. dank, smoky cellar in the middle of the day uh, and to see crowds and crowds of kids watching these four um, young men on stage. They were sort of f rather scruffily dressed mm -hmm. in, in the nicest possible way, or I should say in, in the most attractive way. Mm -hmm. um, black leather jackets and jeans, uh, long hair, of course, and... Uh, rather untidy stage presentation, not terribly aware and not caring very much what they, s what they looked like. I think they cared more even then what they sounded like. Mm. I think they still care more what they sound like. Brian Epstein's presence at the club had also been noticed. It's generally said that he stood out because he was wearing a suit. But as many of the cabin regulars point out in various interviews that the lunchtime gigs were popular among the nearby office workers and probably 50% of the male audience would have been in suits anyway. Brian Epstein stood out because people knew who he was, and probably the vast majority of people in the audience shopped at his store on a regular basis. Ray Ennis of the Swinging Blue Jeans recognised him and asked him what he was doing at the cavern. Apparently his reply was, I've come to watch the Beatles. I believe they are very good. Dorman Paddy Delaney recalls, when it was all over, he was still hanging about, so I approached him and said, it's all over now, sir. And he said, it's all right, I'm off to meet the Beatles. Perhaps unaware of the impact they had made after leaving the cavern, the Beatles headed over to what would turn out to be their last gig at the Litherland Town Hall that evening. The following day they played what was probably the largest venue of their career to date, as promoter Sam Leach had set up another extravaganza, Operation Big Beat, at the 3000 Capacity Tower Ballroom in New Brighton. Operation Big Beat featured Merseyside's top five groups, topping the bill were the Beatles, also featured were Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, featuring Ringo Starr, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Remo Four, and King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. Between the Beatles' two slots, they dashed through the Mersey Tunnel in a race with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and back to perform a gig at the Naughty Ash Village Hall. The next few weeks saw the regular rotation of venues with gigs at the Aintree Institute, Hamilton Hall, the Merseyside Civil Service Club, the Cas Bar, and of course the continuing lunchtime and evening sessions at the Cavern, at which Brian Epstein had now become a regular, catching a word with the group as and when he could. He must also have noticed that Pete Best was starting to build a devoted following among the Cavern regulars. Singer Alex Young recalled, When the Beatles came on stage, the frontmen would come on first and they would plug in and tune up. When they were in tune, Pete Best would walk on and the Cavern would erupt. All the girls would be screaming and he, as he was such a handsome and good-looking lad, he was like a film star. Bass player Alan Stratton adds, The Beatles were the first Liverpool band to have harmonies and they would switch lead vocalists, so that made it interesting as a lot of the bands only had one lead singer. I also loved hearing the deep throbbing bass with Pete Best's drums. The exciting thing was watching Pete Best set up his drums, and the atmosphere became electric because we knew what was coming. On the 24th of November, the Beatles and other top Liverpool bands returned to the Tower Ballroom for the imaginatively titled Operation Big Beat 2. 
This time the Beatles' 11pm slot was enlivened by the arrival of American soul singer Davy Jones, who joined them on stage for a couple of numbers. Part 3, December 1961. December started in pretty much the same way that November finished, as on the first of the month the Beatles once again headlined a six-group, five-and-a-half-hour event at the Tower Ballroom. The event this time advertised under the shortened title of Big Beat and attracted an estimated audience of around 2,000 people. Over the next few days, it was the regular series of cavern gigs in between which the Beatles, accompanied by Bob Wooler, made a visit to Brian Epstein's office for an initial conversation. Wooler recalled, after one lunchtime session, the Beatles and I repaired to the Grapes pub and they told me that Brian Epstein wanted to see them with a view to securing a recording contract and maybe even managing them. But they seemed very dubious. They asked me to go with them to suss him out. It seems that initial encounter was a little tense and John, maybe in an attempt to lighten things up, introduced Bob Wooler as his dad. Epstein was reportedly a bit bewildered by the group, but was polite. He didn't mention anything about management ambitions, but focused on questions about My Bonnie, the record he'd been asked to get hold of, and his concerns about how many copies he would be able to sell if he imported it from Germany. At around this time, Brian Epstein also reached out to the Beatles' former manager, Alan Williams, to find out what had gone wrong with his relationship with the group. Still smarting over what he saw as a betrayal, Williams reportedly told Epstein that they were untrustworthy and that he, quote, shouldn't touch them with an effing barge pole. Despite Williams' negative feedback and a discouraging word from his family's lawyer over getting into the business of music management, on the 6th of December, Brian put his proposals to the group. He would take 25% of their gross fees on a weekly basis. For that, he would assume responsibility for their bookings and promise that they would never again play for less than £15 a night and also promised to double their cavern lunchtime fee from £5 to £10. But perhaps the biggest promise he made was that he would extract them from their contract with Burt Kampfer in Germany and use his influence as one of the country's biggest record retailers to secure them a deal with a major British recording company. John was impressed enough to ask Brian where the contract was so he could sign it straight away, but Brian didn't have one prepared. Brian rejected the standard management artist agreement that he was later sent as an example and instead drafted his own that he presented to the group at the Casbah on the 10th of December and which they agreed to in principle but wouldn't sign it until they saw some proof that Brian could deliver on his promises. On the 8th, another cavern lunchtime tower ballroom evening combination was scheduled. However, the headliner for both these gigs was the aforementioned Davy Jones with the Beatles playing as his backup group for both engagements as well as playing their own sets. Davy Jones's big hit at the time was a song called Amapola, which had a line about Pretty Little Poppy. Amapola, my pretty little poppy, you're like that lovely flower so sweet and heavenly. Since I found you, my heart is wrapped around you, and loving you it seems. Jones was an open cocaine user and introduced several others to the group, including Bob Waller, who Jones gave a snort of the drug to to help him clear some stuffed sinuses. Although there is no direct evidence that he introduced the Beatles to coke. But, as Waller noted, quote, That is a common factor with the Beatles. Whatever was going on, they wanted part of it. Also added to the bill was South African singer Danny Williams, who at that point was number four in the British charts with his version of Moon River. Where 
Williams was in Liverpool for a week of gigs at the Cabaret Club, but never one to miss an opportunity to pull in more music fans, Sam Leach managed to reach an agreement to add him to the Tower Ballroom bill just days before the event, making a total of seven acts for the evening. In a weaker contrast, the Beatles went from an audience of 2,000 on one day to just 18 the next, in what is probably the most spectacular failure of the early British gigs. Promoter Sam Leach had come to the realisation that no London-based agents or record companies would come up to Liverpool to see them, so why not take the Liverpool bands to London? Unfortunately, Sam Leach's grasp of London geography was somewhat lacking, and instead of booking a venue in the city itself, he ended up booking five consecutive Saturday nights at the Palais Ballroom in Aldershot, in which to showcase his charges. Aldershot is in fact 37 miles southwest of London, and is best known for its military base. Not exactly the best combination for attracting the attention of the London music scene power brokers. The Beatles were the first of the Liverpool groups to play the Palais Ballroom in what was supposed to be a battle of the bands between a Liverpool group and a London group, in this case Ivor J and the Jaywalkers. The event was advertised with local posters and handbills, but the scheduled advertisement in the local Aldershot newspaper were never printed as the paper refused to accept Leach's cheque, him being an unknown out-of-towner. After a nine-hour uncomfortable journey in the back of a van, the Beatles were greeted with the prospect of playing to an empty hall, so they dashed around the local coffee bars offering free admission to a dance at the Palais tonight. Just 18 people turned up. Sam Leach's friend Richard Matthews captured the evening on his camera, and the photographs show the valiant Beatles playing to the minuscule audience, even coming down off the stage to mingle with the sparse dancers and share the odd bottle of Coca-Cola. After the gig was over, the Liverpool crew washed away their disappointment with a few beers and an impromptu game of soccer in the deserted hall until they were thrown out and ordered out of town by the local police. At 1am, with nowhere arranged to stay, the group headed into London and ended up in the Soho area at a club run by fellow Liverpudlian Brian Casser, formerly of Cass and the Casanovas. The few patrons still in the club hardly noticed when John, Paul and Pete jumped up on the small stage for an impromptu set. George declared himself too tired and sat it out. With no motorways yet in existence, the journey from London back to Liverpool was another long nine-hour trek, and the boys arrived for their scheduled gig at Hamilton Hall late. In fact, there was just enough time left for them to play a lackluster 15-minute set. The watching Brian Epstein was less than impressed. Sam Leach recalls, We got back late from Aldershot. That was the night they decided to go with Epstein. I wanted to manage them too, but it had been a terrible night in Aldershot, and they felt it wouldn't have happened with Epstein. Despite the failure of the Beatles gig, Sam Leach was determined to give the Aldershot experiment another try, and on December the 16th he escorted Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, including Ringo Starr, south for another battle against the Jaywalkers. This time the local newspaper ran the advert, but even then only 210 people turned up. Leach decided to cancel the three remaining bookings and abandoned his attempt to crack it open the London scene for the Liverpool bands. At some point in December, Brian Epstein had reached out to Tony Barrow, a freelance writer who covered the music scene for the Liverpool Echo newspaper, but had recently moved to London to work as a sleeve note writer for Decca Records. Getting a positive reply, Brian travelled down to London to meet him. Barrow recalls, Brian played an acetate of the Beatles recorded at the cavern. The sound quality was abominable, but it did capture the atmosphere of the place. Barrow made a few calls internally at Decca, making sure to mention that Brian Epstein was also one of their biggest retail customers. Oh, as soon as I mentioned NEMS, they said, Oh, NEMS, yes, Brian Epstein, yes, his group must get an audition. As a prerequisite for the audition, Mike Smith, the assistant A&R man at Decca, travelled up to Liverpool to attend the evening session at the Cavern on December the 13th. The rest of the month for the Beatles was split between the Cavern, the Tower Ballroom and a one-off at the Casbar Ca- Coffee Club. Shortly after Christmas, club owner Peter Eckhorn and singer Tony Sheridan arrived in Liverpool from Hamburg, scouting for more talent for the Top 10 Club. Eckhart also wanted to secure the Beatles' return to his club for the following year. 
they naturally referred him to their new manager, Brian Epstein, who asked for a fee of 500 Deutschmarks per band member per week. After some consideration, Ekholm countered with 450 Deutschmark offer, which Epstein said he would take under consideration. Ekholm returned to Hamburg on December the 30th, still without a signed contract for the Beatles to return to Hamburg. He did, however, have one future Beatle under contract, for Ringo Starr, along with bandmate Lou Walters, had decided to leave Rory Storm and the Hurricanes to work with Tony Sheridan as part of the Top Ten's house band. As the year came to a close, the Beatles were noticeably absent from the Cavern's New Year's party on the 31st, as they had another opportunity to chase. John, Paul, George and Pete were not in their regular spot on the cramped stage of the Cavern, but were instead headed to London for what they thought must have been their big break, an audition with Decca Records. This was the last episode of the second season of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. We'll be taking a short break for the holiday season and to do some additional research. But we will be back in the new year with season three covering the events of 1962 and the continuous story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Beatles, Cry For A Shadow, Johnny Halliday, Too Bass, Too Bass, or Low, or Low, The Beatles, A Taste Of Honey, The Beatles, Twist And Shout, Davy Jones, Amapola, and Danny Williams, Moon River. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle edition. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrin Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.